What if it rained food? What if Earth was a cube? What if we had nine lives? What if bits could fly? It's absurd. If money grew on trees, if we didn't have knees, if we walked through life slightly magnetical, it's absurd. Absurd hypotheticals. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show where we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Laner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm spooky. I got really con- We just talked about being spooky. <laughs> I still got confused with that. Hey, I'm just Ben. I'm just still normal Ben. I'm Chris, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, by process elimination, if he's Ben, then you're definitely Chris, even though you said you're spooky and have now confused the listeners. I can be two things at once. <laughs> I'm capable. It's actually a good base for a Halloween costume. What, what spooky noun i think the best costumes are like blank but also blank included spooky like but, Chris, also, but Chris. also spooky yeah <laughs> that's a good halloween costume that's fair what would that look like it's it's weird <laughs> to have the base be spooky and then backup be you <laughs> me yeah it's kind of the opposite of how it usually goes huh? <laughs> would it just be like a ghost but with like i think it's a ghost wearing one of those like paper masks with the eye holes cut out of your face that's a good costume. It's actually a pretty good costume. <laughs> no one will think it's a double costume. You. I'm a ghost who's going, who's disguised <laughs> as me. Right, yeah. It's got layers. I was once a dinosaur who was also Superman. Oh. Was it a dinosaur dressed as Superman or was it Superman dressed as a dinosaur? Uh, it was a dinosaur dressed as Superman. Okay. He had a cape. I was, I was Link but sleepy um, last year, so from Legend of Zelda, because I just had enough... <laughs> like fan paraphernalia that i just had a, like a big legend of zelda themed like bathrobe that was really nice and comfortable and then i just like had pj pants and you know a t-shirt and like one or two other things i think i had the hat like a bunch of just like literally just a bunch of crap that i just had and i was like this is a costume it's just all fan stuff and the, the year i was a dinosaur also superman weren't you a dinosaur but also a pirate no pirate was different were you also a dinosaur of some kind? Or am I wrong? I did dinosaur. I forget what the butt something else was. Yeah. I think it was just that it was a dinosaur. No, no, no. You know what it was? It was we all went because um, our friend Hannah always had the same dinosaur onesie for Halloween. We always called her out for being lazy after the first, second year that she wore it. And so we found the exact one and ordered it. And the, they were hosting. So the joke was that we, me, Sarah, and Lauren were all going to go wearing what her costume was assumedly going to be. And then she went up just because she was wearing a onesie, but it wasn't her normal one. It was a different <laughs> onesie. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was a fun night. It's a good time. Oh, hello. I've never done the, the combo costume before. I, I just do the one, the pure costume. Uh, so that's why Chris goes as himself, but <laughs> I'm not, I don't go as myself. I go spooky. <laughs> You're going spooky, Chris. Yeah. That's enough. Talk about costumes. We have to get into our spooky question, which actually what Halloween related is actually the opposite of spooky, because the question is, what if no one felt fear? So I'll kind of start us off by answering the first question, which is, what is fear? So fear is basically our body's way of responding to potential threat or harm. The part of our brain most often associated with fear and that fight or flight response is the amygdala. I really hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm gonna say I believe it's times. amygdala. It's amygdala. Amygdala? Yeah. Okay. Amygdala. <laughs> this is great because either you've now steered me wrong and that'll drive everyone else nuts but it won't be my fault it's 100% amygdala 
Oh, that would have been such a good joke, though. <laughs> well, he already said it completely wrong. We couldn't make it even more wrong. <laughs> okay, you're right. That's, that's fair. All right. The amygdala is part of the brain's limbic system, which is responsible for processing emotion. Um, the limbic system is. The amygdala is just a part of that. And basically what it does is it takes input from the rest of your brain, like your cerebral cortex and whatnot, and triggers when you think something is scary. Interesting, it could actually work on a subconscious level too. It doesn't need to just capture your actual conscious emotions. It also has a direct link to your um, your thalamus with your sensory inputs. And so you can actually shortcut past your cerebral cortex and your thinking part of your brain to tell you something is scary and trigger that flight or fraught response before you even consciously are aware of what you're seeing or hearing or, you know, observing. So once the amygdala is hitting that, you know, big red panic button and sending the signals to the rest of your brain, it basically goes over to the hypothalamus, which is your body's, you know, part that affects the body in subconscious ways and triggers the uh, the actual physical fight or flight response. Increased heart rate, breathing, blood pressure, and just, you know, a buttload of adrenaline. And that helps us react to the scary thing, like, you know, noticing a predator, you know, jumping out of the way of a bus or whatever happens to be um, spooking us in that particular moment. Interestingly, the amygdala is also responsible for developing fear memories. So... If you learn something is, you know, just something triggers that fear response, the amygdala can kind of store that. For example, they, they did experiments where they found it played the key role where they were, you know, I'll say teaching rats to avoid electric shocks. You know, basically they're studying how rats reacted to negative stimuli and it was the amygdala that was, you know, actually retaining that fear memory, which isn't the typical place for your brain stores memory. So it's kind of like an extra way it does it. But yeah, so basically you see something scary, either subconsciously or consciously, you're like, crap, God deal this, your body kind of springs into action to help you out. But you may notice we're not really running away or, you know, hiding from lions or tigers or bears or anything in our day-to-day lives. So does not having this fear reaction hurts, like, still hurt our chances of survival? So I kind of just went into it. So how often do we die to things that our flight or, you know, our fight or flight response could actually save us from? So just looking in the U.S. leading causes of death, this is from 2017. Top top category, heart disease, 647,000. Second, cancer, 600,000. Then a pretty big gap where they just have accidents at 169,000. This kind of covers all unintentional accidental deaths, including car crashes, falls, self-poisonings, things along that line. Then after accidents, you have lower respiratory infections and like seven other diseases um, before we get to the first and last non-disease category, which is suicide at 47,000. There's, of course, this doesn't cover all deaths. Um, there's just a big, quote-unquote, other category, which is the real top category, because there's about 700,000 deaths in the just unlabeled category. So basically, big, big picture, 68% of deaths are diseases. 6% are accidents, 1% is suicides, and 25% is quote-unquote, other. So not having our fight-or-flight response is going to make us definitely more vulnerable to everyday mishaps, because in addition to that, you know, what that adrenaline response helps with, it also makes us kind of hyper-aware of our surroundings. So we're going to be generally less aware of our surroundings at critical moments and, you know, less able to respond to them effectively. So that 6% of accidents can definitely start increasing pretty rapidly. And I'm not really sure how much of the other (laughs) involves things that you might be able to, you know, run away from but you know definitely some so definitely not good for our survival rate there but there might actually 
be benefits to not having fear. Um, and really the main one I'm going to go into is that fear causes stress. So because the, the amygdala is serving this function of processing, you know, all this, this input that would get deciding if it's bad or scary or anything, it's also what actually causes you to feel stress. And this includes like chronic anxiety and even depression. So that sounds like a pretty sweet deal if you don't have to feel those things. Um, but does it actually work like that? And luckily, we can actually look to a real-world example to find out. So there was this um, patient that known as a SM, no actual name, SM or SM46 is how they were numbered. Does that stand for something? Is that like your initials? Um, doesn't actually. It didn't actually say. I imagine it's a, you know something to keep them anonymous because right. we don't typically number people like a, you know a dystopian sci-fi novel. Right. <laughs> well, I was thinking it might be initials, but since they put the number on it, it makes me think not. Well, she was part of a she was part of a group. She was part of a group study. Uh, okay. But she so she had a rare condition where due to Erbach White disease, that's my I'm sticking with that pronunciation. You guys, I don't believe you if you tell me you know how to pronounce it better. It's amygdala. so due to this um due to the condition her amygdala was actually destroyed and by destroyed i mean quote complete bilateral amygdala destruction which i've shortened to its fun acronym c bad (laughs) (laughs) so basically the disease you know does affect the brain causes lesions all that it actually just ended up destroying her amygdala and as such she didn't feel fear which they extensively tested by, first, exposure and handling of snakes and spiders, including tarantulas, a walk through a haunted attraction, uh, Waverly Hills Sanatorium specifically, or fear-inducing film clips. Like, the, <laughs> I love they list the movies too. They tried The Blair Witch Project, The Shining, and The Silence of the Lambs. And so they basically exposed her to all the stimuli, and she registered only interest, curiosity, and excitement. One caveat, apparently they broke out the big guns with a simulated suffocation via carbon dioxide. Wow, okay. It's intense. Yeah, it, it didn't really make clear. Simulated, like, they're actually suffocating. Wait, her. that is, yeah, that is just suffocating someone. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll read the line. It says, in response to simulation of the subjective experience of suffocation via carbon dioxide inhalation. Don't know what that means if they act how much actual suffocating they did in that <laughs> right in that sentence so they noted and when they did that she generally experienced a greater fear reaction than normal which she described as completely novel so <laughs> you know they say it sounded like it was bad but you know if they described it as completely novel i guess that's not how i describe something you know harrowing like she, that she described it like that um she and among others in her group you know because so she wasn't alone in her uh in her amygdala destruction group <laughs> i don't know her sea bad group mm. yeah they, they, their eyes don't work too good <laughs> oh god <laughs> i missed my chance to make that joke the first time well i can let You're it like, pass yes, again. He said it again <laughs> so unless it's literally life-threatening she doesn't have that fear response so as a person you know what it looks like you know as you you know take the look what does the whole person look like then so as a person, she's described as very outgoing, extremely friendly, uninhibited, playfully flirtatious, and having an abnormally high desire and tendency to approach others. Which makes sense, like, because she doesn't have any of those anxieties or, you know, social fears. She, they know she actually experiences very little negative emotion, and, and 
and it's not just like a blank slate she actually experiences higher rates of positive emotion you know even though she's not feeling the negative stuff she still gets all the good emotions sounds like a pretty good deal yeah, so since the world's a shitty place, that this is inspired the fact that he's been held up at both knife point and gunpoint, was almost killed in domestic violence incidents, and received explicit death threats on multiple occasions. Sounds like a bad deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which, which they credited to her, well, she grew up in a not great neighborhood, but they credited also to one of the things that the fear response helps you with socially is recognizing other people's emotions. Like, you know, I mentioned it kind of makes you hyper aware. It's that, it's that like, hypersensitivity that lets you pick up on, you know, facial cues and other people. So she's, uh, you know, also known as overly trusting, which can lead you to being held up at knife point and gunpoint and things of that nature. But other than that, like, there wasn't really anything bad going on with her, like, brain. Like, she was just happy all the time. So fine, we're happy. But what does that actually have to do with literal survival? Because that's kind of where I'm focused. Chronic stress is actually one of the leading factors in our number one death category, heart disease. So, yeah, fine. Even if we, like, tripled how many accidents we get into, if we can cut heart disease down by, like, half just because we're getting less often because we're not just stressed all the time due to modern pressures, our overall survival rate will probably go up by a bit. Plus, it seems like we can more or less then rule out the suicide category if we can't feel depression, which would be another, you know, tick in the, in the win column. Don't you think more categories will start popping up, though, like trying to befriend bears and stuff? So, yes and no, because, like, I went back to the act, like, looking at the accents again, where, yeah, we're not going to be as able to respond to an accent, but I also feel like if we're just happy all the time and not stressed or feeling, you know, pressured, we're probably going to make a lot more, you know, generally smart decisions and avoid putting ourselves in spots where we might, you know, hurt others or ourselves, like... I imagine people would probably, I don't know, if you would drive less aggressively because you don't, you're not stressed by the traffic or worried I, about getting. I was going to say time. that I feel like you know a lot of traffic fatalities are related to road rage and whatnot, which I'm assuming would be reduced without stress. Yeah, it might be down. I mean, there's also you are no longer afraid of crashing, so I don't know if that makes you more bold as a driver. But I, I like to believe that if everyone's happy and just not stressing about things that we're gonna have less bad things happen overall i'm trying to imagine what a zoo would be like what would how would a zoo change there'd be no cages probably right <laughs> no you still want cages why if you don't fear the animal doesn't mean the animal can't hurt you <laughs> yeah but you're not gonna care about that right we still oh well oh, no no you, you still care if you, you die care, right <laughs> oh, oh, oh you're well. still thinking you, you still don't want to die all right now you now won't I'm like be going down fearing path. death so it would be it would be i don't need to be fearing death to make decisions that won't kill me yeah not having fear wouldn't make you act irrationally fear is, is an irrational process yeah no like I, I if i was running a zoo and people weren't afraid of my animals i still wouldn't let the lion out because he still might eat people which would if nothing else put me in a legal spot <laughs> well so here's the problem i'm running into is that you would because if you're doing it because you're afraid of being sued, that's still fear. Yeah. I'm trying to find the point where it's still, because in my mind, like there's still like, cages. But... Ooh, I want the positive experience of petting this lion. That's a positive experience. I'm going to do it. If I have nothing to stop me from doing it, I'm going to do it. I don't know. I'm not going to try and draw the, the, the moral line here where, where you decide <laughs> to, you know, if you aren't afraid of consequences, what do you do? 
because I don't think you need to be afraid of consequences to want to do positive things for yourself. You know, for example, I would like to, you know, have a career and but getting put in jail would be a hindrance to that. So I'm going to make decisions that don't put me in jail. I would like my zoo to continue to operate, <laughs> having, <laughs> you know, letting the lions out and eat people will probably reduce the chances of my zoo continuing to operate. It's also just a lot easier to keep, con- like, not lose your lions if they're in a cage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess you do want to contain true. your lions. Yeah, you lions can be easily misplaced otherwise. So you'll have a happy zoo that looks very normal. I am going to put one last, one last caveat in here, though. This one came up pretty late in my research, so I didn't have a chance to figure out all the implications. So apparently the amygdala also is linked into your body responses to biological stresses, meaning stuff like injuries and, you know, internal issues. So I don't know exactly what functions are halted or how they're affected, but I know it's involved with your body diverting blood flow to affected areas or and like your body's inflammation responses. So there's a chance it might take less of an injury to kill you, and you may be more vulnerable to t- disease overall. But at least you won't stress about it. <laughs> Chris, what, what do you got after my, my, my very positive take on, on this one? So you said you aren't going to focus on if we would, like, start committing crimes or, like, the morality of it. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I was actually going to use that as a segue, and then I figured that you might not be done with your answer. And you weren't, so <laughs> <laughs> good thing I didn't use that. I just knew, I'm like, that's a big rabbit hole. I don't need to go down. <laughs> yeah, so mainly I wanted to just see if, like, people would start committing crimes if we don't fear being punished by the law and stuff like that. So to start out, I looked into psychopaths because so psychopaths have a low fear, low level of fear, I guess. And that's and be- a high relevance to our Halloween theme. <laughs> True. <laughs> and um, that's because of a dysfunction of their amygdala. And... Psychopaths actually don't necessarily have a tendency to be violent. That's kind of just how they're portrayed in pop culture. They get a bad stigma from pop culture. Oh, don't want to don't want to stigmatize the psychopaths. Yeah, well, I mean, there are psychopaths that aren't violent though. A psychopath just means they have low empathy. So, low empathy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> in which case, I retract my previous statement and all respect to psychopaths. <laughs> yeah. And it's not necessarily like psychopathy is like a spectrum. So there are, you can have more psychopathic tendencies or less. It's not just like black and white. Yeah, so low empathy is basically just like, so you're looking out for your own basic needs, like your own, you're basically just selfish and you don't really care about other people's needs. So you're willing to screw people over if it benefits you. That's basically what low empathy results in, which can be obviously re- result in like morally bad choices thing is low empathy isn't really what we're looking at we're just focusing on fear so psychopaths while they are like sort of tangentially related they're not really what we're looking at so i actually did find the sm patient in my research as well and i saw all that stuff that you said but the one detail that i came across that was relevant to me is that she's ever not actually ever been convicted of a crime so she's actually pretty good at the law she doesn't experience fear but she has not committed crimes but that's just one example um so it's sort of it's just we i wanted to like try to find a bigger data set so i I found a study or an article that was published in the europe european journal of criminology it was written in 2011 and it's called do people comply with the law because they fear getting caught and what they found is that there are people that 
tend to not commit crimes, and those people don't see crimes as what they call an action alternative, which is basically just an option that they consider doing. So it's not, they don't not commit crimes because they fear punishment. They just don't even consider it as an option at all. And then the people that do commit crimes, they do see it as an action alternative. But they said that those people, they actually do weigh risk versus the punishment. So since they do see it as an option, like for uh, crimes that have a, a more like punishing punishment, they'll do less of those crimes. So they'll like decide based on the punishment. So fear does play into it a little bit. They, they fear punishment. So I wanted to see like, is it just fearing punishment or like do rewards play into it as well? Like, can you like influence behavior with a reward instead of a punishment? So I found another study that is called Reward and Punishment. It was actually published surprisingly on uh, September 11th, 2001. That wow. was crazy. <laughs> but this study describes two common games that they use to study behavior. One's the ultimatum game and one's the public goods game. So the ultimatum game, you have two people, you give one of them money, and you tell that person that he can split it up into two sets of money, and then he gives one of them to the other the, to the second person. If the second person doesn't like the amount of money that he got, he can either he can reject it or he can accept it. But if he rejects it, then neither of them get the money. So that's bad for both of them. But what they found is that the second person will tend to reject the money, even though it's bad for them because he doesn't get the money either, just to punish the first one. And that, in turn, influences the behavior of the first person because he fears getting rejected by that second person. The public goods game is similar. It's, it's with more people. So like a bunch of people pool together some money. It gets multiplied by a certain amount, and then it gets distributed evenly. You can contribute as much as you want. So if you don't contribute any at all, but other people do, then you get money and you don't contribute any money. So that's at your best interest. But they include punishments. So like someone can make that person not get the money if they like pay a fine or something, something like that, some sort of punishment. And that affects the behavior. Now they created variations of these two games with rewards as well. And what they found was that it's less about like immediate punishment or immediate reward. It's more about reputation that affects the behavior more. But punishment is more effective at fostering a good reputation than a reward is. Uh, they found that rewards are like far more complex and they have less stable results at producing good behavior. Um, so punishment was more effective. So in theory, if you don't have punishment, then this good this encouraging good behavior kind of goes away it still stays a little bit but it goes away a little bit too so I was, I was like okay that's that's the law what if we expand this to something bigger i want to look at religion because a lot of religions have punishment like integrated into their beliefs so like some religions have a day of reckoning where everyone is judged for their actions um, and then if they do bad things then they're sent to hell some religions have punishments that carry on to like a future life. If they're reincarnated, then they, they have consequences in that future life. So those are like punishments and people fear them. So they do good things. So I found a 2007 poll, a Gallup poll. It said that seven out of 10 people in the U.S. believe in hell. So 
the majority of people believe in the concept of hell and that it exists and that they'll be punished if they do bad things. Now, in a study in 2011, headed by Azim Sharif from the University of Oregon, in the study, he surveyed a group of people about their beliefs on God, and he was looking to see if they believed that God was a loving entity, a vengeful entity, or if they just didn't believe him at all, in him at all. And then after that, they had the group do like simple addition problems just on a computer. <laughs> Could you imagine being part of that study to like <laughs> get deep questions about your religious beliefs? Like, okay, now that we've done that, if you guys could just do some quick math for me, thanks. Yeah. Like, seriously, like half the time I read a study, that's my thought is how weird this must have been for everyone involved in it. <laughs> so the weird thing about it was that on the com- it was specifically on the computer because they told the, the participants that there was a glitch in the system and it would show them the answer for like a split second, but they'd have to push spacebar to make that answer go away to like truthfully give what they think the answer is. So if you don't push spacebar, you can theoretically cheat. And they want to see how many people would actually cheat. So they found that um, there's no distinction between you believing in God and you not believing in God with the results as to whether you cheat or not. There's no link between believing God and a convoluted math test. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a correlation between if you saw God as vengeful and if you cheated. So people that saw God as vengeful, they cheated less. And this this was confirmed. They conducted the study again later on, and they, they confirmed these results. So there's a consistent result. And the researchers in the study, they argue that communities that grow, um, as the community grows, anonymity also increases so like you become more anonymous and as a result it's harder to track a way to like punish cheaters and people that like misbehave it's harder to track all that stuff as it grows so if they don't have these religious fears to protect large societies they say that if then a society will fall part of it grows too large so in a 2012 study the same person azim sharif he looked at data from the world value surveys and the european value surveys relating to the belief in heaven and hell and he compared that with the national crime rates from the united nations office of on drug and crime and he found a correlation between a higher belief in heaven and hell and lower crime rates so the fact that people believe in hell and they fear hell resulted in lower crime rates so there is a correlation there and according to him, no fear would mean society would crumble. <laughs> so that's that's my hypothesis for this absurd hypothetical. But at least they wouldn't stress about it. <laughs> they wouldn't stress about <laughs> it, but there would be no more society. Is it a joyous societal collapse? Sure. Ben, what do you do? So I wanted to look at, well, I guess at first I didn't really know what I wanted to look at. But once I started researching this a little bit, one of the things that kept coming up was um, how important fear is to motivation in people, which makes sense when you think about it, right? Obviously, you know, in the situation of, of there's a tiger by me, fear is a pretty strong motivator to, you know, run. So specifically, what I wound up looking at is, um, it turns out the, the term for it is the, the hierarchical, well, hierarchical model of achievement motivation which I found a lot of people who talked about this. The one that kept coming up, the person who kept coming up was this, this guy, Andrew Elliott, 
and specifically this one paper he wrote in 1999 called Approach and Avoidance Motivation and Achievement Goals. And the basic idea is that when someone is trying to achieve something, there's really four main sort of reasons they're doing it that, that kind of break down into a pair of um, kind of opposite sides. So there's one, how the stimulus that's related is used. So there's either an approach goal, which means you're trying to move towards a desired stimulus, or an avoidance goal, which means you're trying to move away from an undesired stimulus. And then there is how, how your success in this goal is defined, uh, which is it's basically whether your motivation is internal or external. So it's, it's the mastery performance. So either mastery, you actually want to be better at the thing just to be better at it, or performance, which is that you want to look like you're better at it, basically. So that gets you these these four goals. So there's a mastery approach goal, which is just like intrinsic motivation. You want to do something because you want to be good at it, basically. And actually, a lot of these studies were related to students. And it was very funny. This one, having mastery approach goals was actually a negative protector or negative predictor of visits to the health center, which I thought was really funny. Just like students who just actually wanted to learn went to the health center less often. I'm assuming because they weren't trying to like get out of class. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like trying to figure out what you meant by that yeah. correlation. I'm like, yeah. Well, no, it that... took me a while. They had it in the paper. I was like, why would that be? It's like, oh, wait, that's why. <laughs> they just actually wanted to go to class. And then so there's mastery avoidance, which is they try to strive to avoid losses, which is you basically want to avoid doing worse than you have in the past. Um, which in students, this this leads to disorganized studying and test anxiety, which makes sense. Then there's a per, uh, performance approach goals, which is basically wanting to be able to show off. It's wanting to demonstrate ability to others, which is is related to... <laughs> Didn't apply to the students. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this is people who, who want to have good grades. Um, it's a predictor of service level processing. So it's kind of, you know, kind of like learning the material without actually deeply understanding the material, uh, but actually does have a strong correlation with exam performance because that's just all they're really going for. And then, of course, there's the really bad one, which is performance avoidance, which is trying to avoid looking incompetent, which is like a predictor of anxiety and procrastination and bad for exam performance. So those are the ones we kind of are trying to avoid here. When you look at those, really, both of those avoidance goals are driven by fear when it comes down to it, right? It's being afraid of either you being worse or of people thinking that you aren't good. So I was trying to figure out, one, I guess, if if that was like a valid read of the situation. Um, and conveniently, the same guy, along with David Con Conroy, had a paper called uh, Fear of Failure and Achievement Goals in Sport Addressing the Issue of the Chicken and the Egg, um, which was specifically related to like college students who were involved in like athletics where basically they they tried to correlate being afraid of failing and these different types of of achievement goals and they actually had a whole like they basically you know it was a study where they they took all these all these students and had them go through a couple of tests one to figure out their achievement goal sort of combination or like you know where they fell on the spectrum um, and then wanted to figure out how much fear of failure they had, which I really liked. It sort of drove in what they were looking at. Sort of the the things they were looking for for fear of failure were like experiencing shame, uh, having an uncertain future, upsetting important others. So it was all, you know, like not necessarily just I'm going to, you know, screw up in this game or whatever, but it was more like 
the ramifications of that and those fears. That really reminds me of like, when I did, like if you have you ever done TurboTax? Yes. The very first question, because I just asked you a bunch of questions in series to get your taxes done, and it's great. Um, but we're not sponsored by them. No. That would be also be great. That'd be really weird, um, actually. Be nice. <laughs> not 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 turn it down. Sponsorship. Uh, absurd hypotheticals to your deductibles. Um, <laughs> but they start. What well, it's related is, is they start you off. The first question is like, "So how are you feeling about doing your taxes?" And it's just like you know, frowny face to smiley face. <laughs> and I'm just like, "Huh. I wonder if they were collecting data on." <laughs> right. Yeah. It's weird that people with a lot of money don't mind doing their taxes. Spoilers, then. People with a lot of money don't do their taxes. Well, yeah. Okay. Fair. Yeah. And they, sure as hell don't use turbo tax, I'll tell you that. <laughs> the, the, the people with a lot of money hire people to do their taxes. Right. And the people with a lot, a lot of money just don't do their taxes. Exactly. So, so anyway, what they found in this study was basically sort of, as you'd expect from just looking at those, those goal types, a fear of failure did predict both mastery avoidance and performance avoidance goals. So all the ones that were you know, you kind of assume we're based on being afraid. Um, and then there just was no correlation with either of the the approach goals. And where we get to now in a situation where no one feels fear, there's kind of two ways this can go. And part of, part of the reason that there's two ways this can, go, this can go is I don't entirely understand. I don't have like a background in behavioral psychology. So I don't completely understand all of this. So as, as I see it, there's kind of like a dystopia and a utopia. So which one do you guys want me to start with? Dystopia. All right, let's start with dystopia. <laughs> so, and this is where I, is a lot of it is just me not fully understanding this. I don't know how much of this is like how much a given person is locked into a certain type of achievement goal, right? I don't know if it's like a Myers-Briggs thing where, you know, you're just generally motivated by one of these four because the nightmare scenario is that anyone who is primarily motivated by avoidance goals is just no longer going to be motivated by much of anything because they're no longer have this fear of disappointing people or doing more poorly than they used to or anything like that. And so they kind of just chill and that's it. And like half the population or whatever just doesn't really do anything. And all these people who have uh, these positive intrinsic motivations just rule the world, which is sounds terrible. Kind of shit. I mean, We've had worse dystopias. <laughs> yeah, it's, bad. It's, bad. it's bad. We've had worse dystopias. <laughs> the utopia, in the way I'd like to think it works, is that, uh, and I think if I were to guess, this is probably the way it would work, is that it's not everyone just locked into one or two of these goal types and everyone kind of, for different things, experiences them, experiences them in different ways, is that everyone's going to basically only be motivated by the things they have those those mastery approach mostly goals for so the ones they have a just intrinsic motivation to and what that just means is that everyone just kind of is going to do the things that make them happy that's where we kind of get back to marcus's answer a little bit is that if no one's afraid of failure you're just going to sort of do the things your motivation is going to come from wanting to do things you'll do those and that's nice do things like commit crimes I don't think I. I feel like you're really fixated and say that people, are, everyone's going to commit crimes when uh, there's no, there's no fear. It's, it's going to happen. I just like. I guess it depends on just your general outlook. If it, do you think? I don't think people don't do crimes because they're afraid of the consequences. Well, I mean that was the topic of those papers that I talked about. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, fair. Well, I'm not. I understand. <laughs> Once I understood, again, I'm not I a behavioral psychologist, like, so <laughs> I'm not a behavioral psychologist. I don't understand parts of that. <laughs> so, I guess long story short, 
I'm hoping the situation here is that without fear, everyone is just the motivations that override for people are the ones towards things that they're happy about doing and everyone's really happy. But it's also possible that like half of people just aren't motivated anymore and just lie around and do nothing. This is perfect. This, this is perfect because it's Halloween. Halloween is like a, a pick your own holiday almost. Exactly. Trick or treat. You can, you can, yeah, you can pick trick or treat. You can be in for the Halloween. You can be in for the spooks. You can be in for the scares. You can be in for all the nasty movies. Or you just want the sweet stuff. Yeah, or you just want the sweets. If you're just, you could just be in it for partying, having a good time, dressing up as like a Disney princess, whatever you want to do, and it's all good vibes. Yeah, you can do both. You can mix and match. Basically, you can just mentally edit out all the parts of this episode that you didn't want the conclusion to be to get the exact conclusion that you want from if there was no fear. And no matter which one you pick, you're right. It's perfect. A podcast told you. Have you heard of the Halloween crab? Sorry? The Halloween crab? crab. Yeah, there's a Halloween crab, and it's awesome. (laughs) It's just a crab. It's an actual crab. It has Halloween colors, and it's awesome. You should look it up. It'll make you happy. Oh, this so this is like a species of crab? Yeah, it's a species of crab. Oh, I thought this was like like a story. Also known as Gacarsinus quadratus. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's very Halloween. Oh, it's so cute. It's got... Yeah. Those aren't See, actually his eyes, are they? Also no. known as the Redland crab, the White Spot crab, the Halloween crab, Moon crab, Halloween moon crab, Mouthless crab, and Harlequin land crab. It's like the most Halloween animal you can get. What about a bat? Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> or a spider. Or a black cat. Or a jack-o'-lantern. That's not an animal, but <laughs> it's got a face. Look, this this Halloween crab looks like a jack-o'-lantern, so... It kind of does. I actually don't like it the more I look at it. I'm less happy about it. Really? Okay. That didn't last long. <laughs> yeah. Just like Halloween. It's over before it even begins. Anyway, yeah. Pick pick either, either the candy or the rotten eggs, my answer, and get on with your life. change of plans from our normal our normal uh way we do these i'm i'm asking the questions this time which means marcus ah marcus you're gonna go you never had to go first before you always ask the questions on this are you scared marcus i was scared would you rather be chased by five zombies or be chased by one werewolf okay we have to define what kind of zombie so I assume we're talking like I would say regular, slow, traditional, yeah, traditional zombies. zombies, not not general slow zombies, yeah. like George Romero zombies. Right, exactly. Okay, so obviously, starting off, good thing about the zombies is that they are generally slow. It's true. I could outrun a zombie. Problems. I'm not good at running. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, isn't that a problem in both situations though? Okay, not long. I'm not good at endurance running. Okay. Not too long ago, I, I ran for, like, the first time in, like, years, and I did, like, a mile, and I was like, <gasps> Are you saying that zombies are good at endurance running and werewolves are They're good aren't? at endurance walking. They're good at endurance shambling. Yeah, endurance is kind of all zombies do. <laughs> I mean, if we're talking George Romero zombies, they are very easy to avoid, I think, unless there's, like, a, a swarm of them. Five is relatively... It's a small swarm, but it's a, it counts as a swarm. So I guess... I think I would assume that if we're saying be chased by, you are being focused on by either the zombies or the werewolf. Yes. So the problem with the zombies I see is that they're always going to be coming after you. Okay, so here's here's the other, so here's the other way to do it. So basically, in order to resolve these encounters, you, you're going to have to do a trap of some sort. 
So the question is, is it easier to come up with five zombie traps or is it easier to come up with one werewolf trap? How easy is it to get silver? I feel like it's actually... Really? You, don't need, you don't need to kill the werewolf. Yeah, but if you don't, it's just going to keep on coming after you. Well, you only have one night to worry about. I, that is what I was going to say, is that you do... The advantage with a werewolf is that you do only have to deal with one night. Then you just have to kill a regular dude the next day. Well, <laughs> wait, actually, hold you on. Does he him, still man. chase you after he's not a wolf anymore? He's still a werewolf. He's just not in his wolf form. That's So, yeah, he still chases you. I'm going to turn this on its head, then. There's only a a one in, what, 30 <laughs> chance it's a full moon? <laughs> <laughs> so, do so you want to be chased by five dead guys or one live guy? <laughs> you know, that's still honestly a question. It is. <laughs> Because you can get accused, you can get accused, you know, of murder right. for killing a dude. No one's gonna question if you kill a zombie. They're gonna right, be like, exactly. Okay. Oh, it's like, You're oh, justified. it's a zombie. Good job. <laughs> so there's legal implications here. <laughs> Do you fear getting punished by the law? Oh, we went full circle. <laughs> oh man. Okay, I thought so. This, so this is this is interesting because I thought the answer was gonna be werewolf because you just to avoid him for one night. But it's low chance it's a wolf. Yeah, I think it, in this scenario, it starts off in his wolf form. And if you survive the night, then he's a person, but he still chases you. Okay, maybe, maybe that changed. See, I don't know. Um, it's tough. Man, I think it's just got to be easier to get five zombie traps going. Because zombie traps are like, so fucking easy. <laughs> you could like put a rake out with like a sharp stick on the tip. Right. And you could probably take out a zombie. I mean, they're not smart. They're not smart. Werewolf, you have to like lure... And then, like, trap, but it has to be a quick trap, and the trap has to be sturdy. I mean, are, wolf, are werewolves smart? They're probably more smart than zombies, but they're kind of primal, right? Oh, yeah, definitely right? smarter than zombies. And I don't think they're smarter than humans, are they, in their wolf form? I mean, even if they're smart as smart as wolves are, it's still pretty smart as far as trapping goes. Right. Yeah. They're probably easier to bait. Like, I don't know what you would use to bait a zombie. Like, assuming zombies only go for brains, where are you going to get brains? It is easier to get silver than it is brains. You could probably you could probably go to like I guess you couldn't go to like a butcher. They wouldn't have brains. You could it has get to brains. be like sort of live brain like do they go for dead stuff? That's stuff that's already dead? Uh I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I guess you don't you don't need to bait a zombie trap. They're slow enough you can just like set up the trap and then the And just let them goes. walk into it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean you can be the bait. Yeah, exactly. Wait, no, I I, I just cracked it. I can get to my car. If I'm being chased by five zombies. Oh. I might not get to my car if I'm getting chased by a werewolf. Yeah, that's fair. Once I'm in my car, I think you're good. Because either you're getting chased by a werewolf, if you just drive to, like, Georgia, you'll good for a bit. Those <laughs> <laughs> keep on coming after you, and eventually they'll find you. <laughs> Actually, you can use the legal system against the werewolf as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because this dude's chasing me. Yeah, you get a restraining order, and they'll violate it, and you get them arrested. Yeah, I mean, if he's just a normal person after that first time, then... Yeah. How long does it take to get a restraining order? Um, probably more than one moon cycle, huh? <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's just more... Da- I think, again, I think just for me, it's the car. I can get in my car, I can drive away from... Or run over the zombies. One of the two. I feel like running over zombies is a much worse idea than people think it is. People are heavy. Okay, I'll drive to somewhere and get a, like, plow attachment for my car, and then run over the zombies. Yeah, you're fine. You'll be good. It is much easier to kill zombies than it is a werewolf. It's also easier to kill a man <laughs> than to kill five zombies. But is there, any way to prove th- 
Is there any way to prove that he's a werewolf after you there kill him? There is not. <laughs> but look, the silver bullet killed him. He has to be a werewolf. Right. <laughs> Basically, so, okay, you would have to, you would have to be on film in a continuous and continuous footage from preferably multiple sources see them chasing after you as a werewolf changing back into a human you have to get the transformation on video right and then a video of him violating your restraining order right (laughs) (laughs) that seems difficult it does seem difficult now that we've laid it out huh (laughs) so is it time to vote all right yeah it's time to vote um i'm five zombies i'm going zombies i'm also going zombies is there a number of zombies that changes the math? I was going to ask that question. I think That's there is. One of, the reasons I, one of the reasons I like the the like large number of one thing or small number or another thing is that at some point there's a ratio. I think it's, I mean, 10 gets a little closer. 20 is like my gray tipping point. I think 20 definitely I would go with the werewolf if it was 20. It might be 10, actually. 10. Like, I'm thinking about like, say you are, say you are in like, I don't know, a hotel, like, or, like, you're in a restaurant and the zombies catch up to you. Like, at what point is it likely that there's not going to be an exit where you can't sneak out or, you know, just, like, get out before there's zombies around you? Yeah, if there's 10 of them, it's pretty easy for them to swarm you in a way that you can't escape. Right. It comes down to, like, how spread apart are the zombies and how many do- zombies do you think you can dodge? And then you just have to do density calculations. Yeah. I think more than one zombie game pass is dicey. So I think 10 might actually be the tipping, tipping point. Ah, oh, werewolves are scary, as is the legal system. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm sticking. I'm, my, my number is 20 zombies. My number is 10. I'm going to say 15. A healthy compromise. Ooh, Marcus, the big shot, thinks he can take on 20 zombies. That way we can still average and Ben is still right. Yep. That's why he picked it. Sure is. <laughs> if you think we picked the wrong number of zombies, that would tip the scales here. You can let us know. And one of the places you could do that is you could write a review. You could go to the app that you're in and where there's like the, it's usually indicated by stars, the five pointed things. Um, and you want to kind of click on the fifth star so that they're all filled up. And then it'll bring up text box where you can write in stuff like, nah, should have been 30. I could take 30 zombies. Also, the show is great, for example. That could be what you write. Is that why there are five stars in the system? Because stars have five points? No. No. Okay. it's just a happy coincidence but yeah if you leaving reviews the show is a great way to help spread the show have it show up on you know all the fancy search algorithms things like that and just a way to directly show that you're enjoying the show and what you know what you like about it let us know we always love to see them and if you are looking for other ways to help the show you can always go to our patreon www.patreon.com slash absurd hypotheticals for just $1 a month, you get access to all our behind-the-scenes episodes, which are just a blast. I won't spoil them here. I spoil them often, but you can. St- <laughs> I'm not going to spoil them right now. But that is another way that you can show your support, which we'll be just super-duper thankful for. And the last way you can show your support is just by tuning in next week when we answer following question, which isn't actually a specific question because we're going to do a grab bag all about mythical creatures gonna be sweet there's gonna be dragons and there's gonna be is there gonna be dragons, not gonna be dragons. Not gonna be dragons. <laughs> we already, yeah we already did that it's gonna be unicorns and leprechauns and phoenixes oh my 